please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 54. Express my gratitude to the elders and Pastor Ben for another opportunity to open God's Word both this week and next week. Very thankful. Isaiah 54, and we will read the entirety of the chapter this morning. Isaiah 54, and the word of the Lord says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. It is unlikely that anyone in here knows the name of the fourth tallest mountain in the world. If you think through all the mountains that you know, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, you can list probably a number of mountains this morning, 
but you probably don't know the name of the fourth largest mountain in the world. Why would that be the case? Well, it's because that mountain sits within two miles of the tallest mountain of the world, Mount Everest. If you were to go just a mile and a half, just a little bit over from the top of Mount Everest, you would reach the top of the fourth tallest mountain in the world. That's taller than all those other mountains you can name. And the reason you don't know the name of it is because it is overshadowed by something greater. In many ways, that is what happens to us when we read this chapter, Isaiah 54. It's not a chapter that we are overly familiar with. If you read this chapter and the next chapter, Isaiah 54 and 55, these chapters perhaps go unlooked in our Bibles because they rest in the shadow of a far seemingly more significant chapter in our Old Testament. One of the mountain peaks of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, which proclaims the suffering of the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ. We recognize the value of that chapter and Isaiah 54 sort of goes overlooked. We miss the significance of this chapter and the next chapter. And so it is my desire to examine this chapter this morning and 55 next week. And I have one goal of this sermon this morning, and that is to encourage you. My goal this morning is not to rebuke you, although there may be a place for that. My goal this morning is not to plead with you or to urge you to do something. It is to encourage you by showing you what you have in Jesus Christ. And the reason that is my goal is because that is the goal of this passage. If you drop your eyes down to the ending of this passage, verse 17, you'll see that. Verse 17, the conclusion of Isaiah 54 states this. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah is not primarily giving a command, even although there are commands in this passage. He's saying, look and see. Behold the heritage that is yours as a servant of the Lord. That word heritage really is referring to one's inheritance. And so this morning, it is my utmost desire to encourage you by showing you what your inheritance is from the Lord. And that inheritance is an inheritance that is a secure abundance. The theme of this passage all throughout, from the front to the end, from verse 1 to verse 17, is that you, as a servant of the Lord, have this secure inheritance. It is an inheritance that is abundant. And so this morning, may God give us grace to rest in the secure abundance for those who are the Lord's. This secure abundance is portrayed in this passage really by two different metaphors or images. The first image that describes this secure inheritance, the secure abundance, is the metaphor of a woman, verses 1 through 8. So let's look at that metaphor. Let's look at the secure abundance of this woman who's described. If you read this text, verses 1 through 8, you'll notice that there are several different nuances actually to this image. It starts with this nuance, verse 1, sing, O barren one. Israel, the nation of God, is compared to a barren woman who has no children. And the command issues forth to this nation, sing, rejoice. Notice the repetition of commands. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Let your voice rise in volume to proclaim loudly praise to God. 
Well, how could a barren woman be encouraged to praise God? Well, the passage makes it clear that her circumstances will be reversed. It says this. It says that her children, the children of the desolate one, verse 1, will be more than the children of her who is married. This is an image that is describing the people of God, the nation of Israel. They're described to a barren woman as one who cannot bring forth children. So if Israel is the barren woman, what is the barrenness? What is the thing in the life of this nation that is causing sorrow and shame? When we understand this metaphor in its context, the metaphor of a barren woman, it would have been something that brought shame and great sorrow. In the ancient Near East, the priority of having children was very high. The need for an heir to secure the family fortune, the land in which that family had as a possession, it was very important that a woman be able to bring forth a child, particularly a male child. You read that all throughout your Old Testament. There are multiple stories in your Old Testament of women who are struggling to have children. They are barren. And there is great sorrow that is afforded to this woman. Even today, if you ex- talk to someone who has experienced this particular struggle to have a child, you will see very quickly the sorrow that that brings to that person. This barrenness brings the nation sorrow and shame. But what is it that would bring Israel shame and sorrow? Think back to all the events that have happened in your Old Testament to this point in Isaiah 54. What is the primary event that would cause this nation sorrow and shame? It is them being sent into exile. They were judged by God as a result of their sin. They were sent away from the land that God had promised to them. This is the primary thing that would bring this particular nation shame and sorrow. But yet here in this passage, it is overturned. Here, God says to this nation, the children of the barren woman will be more than the children of her who is married. In other words, the sorrow and shame of exile will be reversed. This nation, though sent into Babylon, will return and they will be restored. And it is that restoration, that hope of a coming restoration, which brings them great joy. The abundance of this nation is found here in this passage. They will break forth into singing because of the restoration that is to come. These abundant promises that were given to this nation, that they would have a land in which they would dwell, these promises seemed lost. These people were sent away into exile. And then Isaiah writes this chapter, Isaiah 54, to the people who would be in exile in Babylon. And he says to them, you will return. He's giving them the one thing they desired most, the hope of restoration of God's promises. Well, how is it that these promises are reversed? What is it that brings them back to this land? When you look at Isaiah 54, it isn't clearly stated at this point. It's almost assumed that something will happen. We'll get to that in a moment. But notice just how abundant this restoration will be. Look with me at verse 2. Notice the command that's given. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Strengthen your cords. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. 
we extend the metaphor just a little bit of a woman who's barren, but now having an abundance of children, Isaiah is saying here, you're going to have so many children, extend the boundaries of your dwelling place. Knock down the walls. That would be something that we would do because we have homes that have walls. Or here in this passage, it's enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtain. Strengthen the the stakes. Make it so that you can fit more people under that dwelling. He is going on and on about just how abundant this restoration is going to be. You will come and you will be restored. And this metaphor, the metaphor of having many children is here expounded upon. Enlarge. Make it bigger. In our context, we would think of knocking down the wall or renovating your house or perhaps buying a property for a bigger house because you're just going to have that many children. It's sort of a strange metaphor to put in our context. Perhaps because children aren't as valued as they were in this cultural context in our own society today. He's saying that when this restoration occurs, the restoration of returning to God's land, it will be dramatic. It will be overflowing. It will be extensive. It will be abundant. And we know this, this is confirmed because this language, the language of a barren woman, alludes to someone who comes in our Bible previously. Who is the first barren woman that you can think of in the Old Testament? It's probably Sarah. What were the promises that were given to her husband? The promises of many, many offspring. That was one of those promises. Another promise was that that offspring would have a land in which they would dwell. And finally, that that offspring would eventually be a blessing to all of the nations. All of those promises are listed here in this passage as coming back into fruition. You see, as the nation goes into exile, as they are defeated, as their numbers are dramatically reduced, the question in these people's minds is, have all those promises been lost? We are no longer in the land. We are a much smaller people. Where are God's promises for us? And you read this passage, and what does Isaiah say? He says, the barren woman who could not bear children, she will have more children than those who are married. Isaiah is alluding to all of these Old Testament promises that were given to Abraham. And saying that they will come to a restoration and a fruition in this nation. You see this even in verse 3. You will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations. There are going to be so many offspring. They'll actually have to inhabit other nations. They will people the desolate cities. You see that at the end of verse 3. But they will even go beyond the boundaries of the land. He's saying the promises that were given to Abraham... They are going to be far more abundant than you can even conceive, than you can even think of. There is this dramatic, dramatic abundance that is given to this nation. Now, if you have abundance of any sort, what is your primary fear? What is the fear that goes with abundance? It's the fear of losing it. The fear of having abundance is the fear of losing it. And that is exactly where this passage turns. Look with me at verse 4. The command is given, fear not. In other words, the abundance that will come, the restoration that is future, that restoration that is coming, it is entirely secure. We know this in our own experience of having abundance and being afraid of losing it. One of the major concerns that people have with their retirement is, is it secure? Is the money that they've put away, will it be saved up and be stored up? 
or even having a large possession, is that possession going to fail? Perhaps you've seen photos of houses in San Diego near Dana Point that are about to fall into the ocean because of some landslides. These houses are worth multi-million dollars. One of them, you can look it up on Zillow, it's $14 million, was last purchase price. You have these houses that are worth incredible amounts of money. They are lavish. They have a picturesque view, a view that many would die for. And they're about to fall into the ocean. You see, there's very little benefit in that abundance because it is very insecure. The abundance that is given to you as a servant of the Lord, if it is not secure, what value is it? And so Isaiah encourages his hearers. He says this, the abundance that you have that is coming in this future restoration, do not fear It is secure. You have no cause for fear. And that brings us in this passage to these other nuances in this image. The image of a woman. A woman who has this secure abundance. The image started with a barren woman having many children. But now it shifts here in verse 4 and in verse 6 to a woman who's widowed. Look with me at verse 4. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Then if you look at verse 6, it says, The Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. There are these other nuances that are given to this image. First, it was a barren woman. Now it's a woman who's been bereaved of her husband. Now it's a woman who's lost. It makes complete sense why the metaphor would shift because a woman who's been widowed, a woman who's been bereaved of her husband, a woman whose husband has left her, that woman is one who had abundance previously, but now they had lost it. It's the exact circumstances of this people. You see, this people dwelt in the land. They were blessed by God. They were numbered as many as the sand on the seashore. In the reign of Solomon, many of the promises that God had given to Abraham were being brought to fruition, and yet here they had lost seemingly all of them. Because they had been sent into exile. And so God encourages this people and says to them, You are like one who has lost everything, but you have no need to fear, because the abundance that I have promised is totally secure. We put these images in their context, in context of a widow or of one who's had their husband leave her. This is definitely the image of a loss of security. Again, in the ancient Near East, the provision of a husband was viewed as someone who would bring abundance to that family and also protection. So the loss of a husband is the loss of protection. It's the loss of provision. It's the loss of security. This nation at this time seemingly had lost their security because their relationship with God had been alienated because of their sin. You see, this informs us to the greatest threat of our abundance that we have with our relationship with God. The greatest threat to your abundance that you have in a relationship with God is not necessarily something external to you. It is not a circumstance. It is not opposition. The greatest threat to your loss of abundance is inside of you. It is your sinful nature. You see, what lost Israelites' abundance, the abundance that God had given to them, was not primarily another stronger nation. God had defeated numerous stronger nations. And although, yes, they were defeated by this nation, that was not the primary reason that they lost that abundance. It was not that they had inferior military tactics or the enemy outnumbered them 
Or perhaps for some reason they ran out of food or there was a disease that wiped them all out. Well, definitely some of those things happened. That was not the reason which they happened. The reason they happened was because this nation had given themselves over to idolatry. Because they had abandoned the Lord. Because they had forsook him. You see, the the threat to the loss of one's abundance is found inside of that person. It is their own proclivity to sin. It is their own action of sin. So when God says to this people, do not fear. The abundance that's given is entirely secure. When he says that, that implies that the threat to that loss of abundance has been nullified. And we know this, that it has been nullified because this chapter falls directly on the heels of Isaiah 53. At the ending of Isaiah 53, we have language that speaks of the servant, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, bearing the sin away of many, of bearing the transgression of those who had sinned against him, of suffering so that their sins would be taken away. You see, the the salvation that the servant accomplishes in Isaiah 53 The benefits of that are listed here in Isaiah 54. And those benefits are such that you would have no cause for fear. That the abundance that you have in your relationship with God is entirely secure. Consider who the husband of this people is. Verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, He is called. This language portrays this relationship. The relationship whereby Israel would find their secure abundance. That relationship with God has been entirely restored. He is their husband. He brings about restoration. And the language that is given, which describes this act of restoration, is sweeping. It is dramatic. Look with me at verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This language is very pronounced. Though for a moment it seemed as if I had abandoned you. I will gather you in an everlasting way with everlasting love and everlasting compassion. This restoration is totally secure because of the work of the husband in this metaphor. And for a people whose relationship to God had been fractured because of their sin, God is informing them that they have no need to fear that happening any longer. Because he has gathered them to himself. It implies that their sin has been put away by somebody. And we know from Isaiah 53 that that sin has been put away by the servant of the Lord. By Jesus Christ. You see this morning, abundance is found in this relationship. It's found in one's relationship to the Lord. It's not primarily found in external things. It's found between you having communion with God. That is where God's fullest abundance in this life can be found. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you have never known this abundance. And it's because you do not have a relationship with this God. 
But this morning, if you have a relationship with God, you have this abundance offered to you. Perhaps you're a Christian seated here this morning and you have fear like these people might have fear. That your relationship with God has been fractured, been strained, or you have done something whereby you are alienated from God. Perhaps shame hangs over your head. It could be the remembrance of something that you did prior to conversion. It could be the remembrance of something that you've done even this week. Perhaps your children, their attitudes were very difficult this week and you lashed out and you took it out, perhaps not on your children, but on your spouse or someone at your work. Or you brought your work home with you and you took it out on your family. Or perhaps you have had this growing sense of inability and inadequacy. You desire for perfection in all things and you just can't measure up to the standard that you have placed upon yourself. Perhaps you've been searching for meaning in some fleeting pleasure of this world and you are running dry. Let me inform you this morning, consider God's compassion. Brother and sister in Christ, consider the compassion that God has upon you. He is your creator. He is your redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the God of the whole earth. He has gathered you. He has had everlasting love upon you. And he has compassion toward you. Your relationship with him is entirely secure in no part because of anything that you have done. Entirely because he has drawn you to himself in the midst of your sinfulness. And so this morning, the abundance of that relationship is utterly secure. Consider him. Well, that brings us sort of to this interlude in verses 9 and 10 between the image of a woman and the image of a city. And it's this promise really is the anchor of this abundance. It's this promise that's given in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at this promise that's made. It's, it's really a covenant. Verse 9, it says this. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn. And there it is, the promise that's mentioned. It's described at the end of verse 10 as a covenant of peace. God here has promised this covenant with his people. And it's compared to the covenant that he made with Noah. In other words, if you don't understand the covenant that God made with Noah, you're not going to understand the benefits that this covenant that God makes with his people now has to offer you. What were the characteristics of the covenant that God made with Noah? Well, one of them was this, and that Noah brought no contribution to that covenant. That, in covenant. that covenant was entirely unilateral. It was going to be fulfilled and upheld by God alone. There was nothing that Noah brought to the covenant. He didn't bring amount of money or the blood of animals, thereby to secure the covenant. There was nothing required of him to maintain the covenant. It wasn't that Noah had to live a blameless life. In fact, in the very next chapter in Genesis, you read that Noah did not live a blameless life, blameless life, and yet that's, that covenant still exists. There was nothing that Noah brought to the covenant. And in the same is true of this covenant that God has made with us. That God makes really with his people Israel. This covenant here is not dependent on something that Israel can do. And you see why this would allay their fears. Because their fears might be this. Well, we had this abundance previously, but we lost it because we were sinful. And God is saying, this abundance cannot be lost no matter what you do. It is affirmed unilaterally. It is given to them. God alone will keep it. Noah's covenant also was something that would not cease. It was everlasting. You read in Genesis and it describes that 
you know, seasons may come to an end, but this covenant will remain. The covenant that God would not destroy the waters, the earth with the waters of a flood. Here in this passage, that same image is given. Verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. And if that was not enough to affirm the everlasting nature of this covenant, notice what he says in verse 10. The mountains may depart. The hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will never depart from you. In other words, the most unshakable things of this world may fade and cease, but yet my covenant toward you will not. When all of your life is fading, And ceasing, the things that seemingly are unshakable to you, when those things fade away, this covenant still remains for you. Well, that brings us to sort of this interpretive issue, and that is who this covenant is made with and what application it offers us. This covenant is a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. Technically, strictly speaking, it's not something that he made with any of us in here. Because we are not ethnic Israelites. We are Gentile people. Unless you are a son of Abraham this morning or a daughter of Abraham. Uh, This covenant was not made with you. So where is the application for us? Is this application, has it already been fulfilled? These are all sort of interpretive issues that arise when we start to probe the nature of this covenant and how it applies to us as Gentile people. And that issue, as however thorny as it may be, is resolved if we just examine two or three other occurrences of this phrase, covenant of peace. And so I'll just ask you to turn to two references this morning, and they're in the book of Ezekiel. This phrase, covenant of peace, isn't super common in our Old Testament, and it occurs really in the prophets, and one of those other occurrences in the book of Ezekiel. Turn with me to Ezekiel, I didn't mention the chapter, 34, um, Ezekiel 34. And just ask yourself, as we just look at some verses, and we're not going to have time to examine the meaning of all of them, but just as we examine some of them, just ask, is this a covenant that has already been fulfilled or is it something that is yet future? Ezekiel 34, verse 23, notice what God promises to the nation. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Well, has that taken place? What about verse 24? I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Well, David had long been dead, so who is this referring to? Probably someone like David who is to come. He's going to be their king. Well, notice with me verse 25. I will make with him a covenant of peace. It's the covenant that we're describing. And I will banish wild beasts from the land, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill, my dwelling place, my mountain, a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. The trees of the field, verse 27, shall yield fruit. The earth shall yield increase. They will be secure in their land. Well, is the nation of Israel secure in its land? Well, they are in the land. But if you think about when these words were written, Israel was not in the land. They returned to the land again. And then they were expelled from the land again. It was almost as if, God, if you made this this covenant and it's already happened, well, then it's not true because we've left the land. So this has to be referring to something that is yet to come in the future. Same thing occurs when you look at the other occurrence in Ezekiel, and that's in chapter 37. So just glance over with me to chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. 
my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Now notice the wording of this. Is this something that has already happened or not? They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Has that already happened? No, it seems to be in the future. So if the covenant of peace that Isaiah describes, you can turn with me back to Isaiah 54. If that covenant of peace is something that is to come, how does it benefit us who are seated here right now? In fact, it's not even made with us. It's made with the nation of Israel. Well, the New Testament teaching on this is very clear. The New Testament affirms throughout that this covenant has relational blessings and physical blessings. In other words, this covenant brings blessings whereby one has a relationship with God, and it also has blessings whereby one experiences benefits from God, namely dwelling in this particular land with God dwelling in the land with them. Those physical blessings are yet still in the future. But those relational blessings a Christian experiences even now, even though the covenant is not strictly made with them. Because they have been bought by the blood of an Israelite, Jesus Christ. They have been grafted in to experiencing those covenant blessings today. And so if you are seated here this morning, this is true of you. Isaiah 54, 9. I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. The mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will never depart from you. Think about the wording of New Testament passages. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The love of Christ will never be separated from you, and nothing can separate you from his love. These relational blessings that one experiences to God are brought to us as we receive Jesus Christ. So even if the mountains and the hills fade away, even if the most unshakable realities of your life fade away, God's steadfast love will never depart from you. Think about what seems unshakable in your life this morning. Is it the laughter of your children? What if that were to fade away? Even if that were to fade away, God's steadfast love would never depart from you. Is it the sweetness that you enjoy with your spouse? Even if that were to fade away, God's steadfast love does not depart from you. Is it the security that you have in your current employment? Even if that goes away, God's steadfast love never departs from you. Is it the stable condition of your current health? Even if that fades away, God's steadfast love does not depart from you. Nothing can separate you from the love that you have in Christ Jesus. The abundance that you have in your relationship with God is entirely secure through the person of Jesus Christ. And so you experience that blessings even now. Well, that brings us really to this final image, and that's the image of the city. We see that the woman portrays the secure abundance in one's relationship to God, well, now the city is described, and the city itself is described as very secure and very abundant. 
And it's described here in verses 11 through 17. Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Think about the places of the city that are described in this verse. These are some of the most pragmatic places of a city. Think about them. It's the stones, the foundation of the city, the pinnacles, the wall, the gates. These are all places where you know, an attention to aesthetic beauty in creating them isn't of foremost concern. The primary concern of a gate or a wall is, is it going to keep intruders away from them? You know, gilding it with precious stones is not a primary concern. In other words, the fact that all these things, the foundation, the gate, the wall, the pinnacle, all of them are gilded with precious stones implies something about the abundance of this city. This city reflects the abundance that its inhabitants have with its designer. The one who creates this city is one who is very abundant, and to live in this city is, requires that same abundance. There's a city that's being built. Perhaps you know of it. It's in Saudi Arabia. It's called the Line. It's a strange name for a city, but it's because it's a single line. It is a 170-kilometer line, 105 miles, 106 miles. It's 105 miles long, and it is only... 212 yards wide. It is a very strange city to construct. But if you look up designs of this city, it is a city that is going to be very extravagant, very wealthy, very beautiful. In fact, the whole exterior of the design is designed to be reflective of the environment. In other words, when you look at the exterior of this city, you will only see yourself. The whole city is going to be covered with these glass paneling. There already is a city in Saudi, a building in Saudi Arabia that is like this. Now they're going to create an entire city. What does the design of the city imply about its designers, its builders? It implies that they're very wealthy. The public investment fund of Saudi Arabia has you know, around $780 billion in assets. It manages money for the government of Saudi Arabia. They're the ones building this city. Well, to live in this city would also require a certain degree of abundance. That same principle is true in this passage. This city that God is describing, who is afflicted, who is not comforted, this city is one that is extravagant. It is abundant. The most pragmatic parts of the city are made of precious jewels and stones. In other words, if you are going to dwell in this city, you must also have this degree of abundance. Why is the city so abundant? Well, it's because of the one who dwells in it. You read other texts, particularly in the New Testament, Revelation, this same imagery of precious stones making a city is used. Revelation chapter 21. And the reason being because God himself dwells there. The abundance of the city reflects the one who inhabits it and reflects the people who will be with God. That is described to these people. This is a city, coming city, a future city, an inheritance for these people that would be extravagant and abundant. It's not just abundant in a physical description. It's abundant really morally. Look with me in verse 13. All your children are going to be taught by the Lord. Great will be the peace of your children. In other words, the people who are coming later who are going to inhabit this city, they're not going to sin like you are because they're being taught directly 
by the Lord himself. He is among them. He is in this city. Verse 14, in righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression. You will not fear. These people, they have a life of abundance in the city because God dwells with them. Well, is this city going to be secure? You might ask. Well, this text answers that. Verse 15, if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you will fall because of you. Or verse 16, here's this encouraging promise. I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. In other words, the enemy that comes against you who holds a weapon or a sword, I created that person, but I also created the person who created the weapon. In other words, I am the origin of all these difficulties that you have experienced. Think of how encouraging this would be to a people who had been sent into exile, who had lost the abundance because of a defeat to another nation. God says, I created that nation. I created the people who created their weapons. They are the reason that this people was sent to exile. And God says, I am behind it all. And I'm doing so because I have a city that is laid up for you one day that you will inherit where you will dwell with me. And that city is one that will be abundantly secure. It will be fruitful. It will have great blessing and nothing can destroy it. Nothing can destroy the inhabitants. There's no cause of moral sin whereby the inhabitants would need to be removed from the city. All of the reason for security is afforded in this passage, verse 15 through 16. This security comes from the relationship that one has with the builder, the designer of the city. In other words, if you have a relationship with God, if what is true of the woman in verses 1 through 8, that your relationship to God has been restored by the blood of Jesus Christ, then this future secure abundance is also afforded to you. Your present is entirely secure by the blood of Christ, and your future is as well. What application would there be for us this morning? In other words, how do we bring these future realities, bring them to bear upon our current life? Well, that same dilemma would have been for the people who received this passage. Think about who received this passage. The nation of Israel in Babylon. Did they ever see this city? Did they ever have the privilege of looking on walls that were made of precious stones? Did they ever have the privilege of having their children taught directly by the Lord? Of being far from oppression? Of, of having one say to them, if enemies come against you, they will fall because of you? Well, these recipients of this message also had the same dilemma. In other words, something God has promised to them in the distant future How does it affect their present life? How does it give them hope? What is their response? Well, the response perhaps should be the same as this passage. It's to see and to rejoice. This passage ends in verse 17. This is the inheritance. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Brother and sister in Christ, if you are in Christ, this is your inheritance. You have every reason this morning to rest entirely secure in the abundance that's given to you. Your relationship to God has been restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your future inheritance in this city that one day you will dwell with God is secure by the blood of Christ. And so you have every reason to rest in whatever happens in this world and to have great cause for rejoicing 
because of the secure abundance in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer.